Hello, I'm Rick, and Jim is with me today, and we're performing the essential service of preaching and teaching the Word of God. For us, that means we continue in a series on increment 23 of a series called We See Jesus, a study of the book of Hebrews or the epistle to the Hebrews 2020. Now, we've been with our own local assembly sending out prayer requests. We have a limited room in the text, so I tried to get a, a meaningful prayer in. If you read First Chronicles chapter 21, you'll understand that perhaps our next prayer, not sure yet, but our next prayer may cause you to consider to me, me to be a little bit bizarre. But it's not intended to do that at all. I'm bringing in a little bit of angelology into a prayer that we can all pray together on Wednesday, the 22nd. There's a song called Can't Let Go. It's by a group called Caught by a Ghost, or Caught a Ghost, rather. Caught a Ghost. Can't Let Go. I can relate to this song because its main line is, I got a feeling and I, that I can't let go. I got a feeling that I can't let go. This happens to me every time I begin a series. And whenever I'm studying the word of God, I'm usually driven by a feeling that I can't let go. And with Hebrews, I have a feeling that I can't let go. It has to do with seeing Jesus in a particular light and through a particular lens. And we're going to come to this as we continue in our study of Hebrews. In his excellent commentary, and I'm reading four or five of them right now, commentaries on Hebrews, William Lane, William L. Lane, wrote regarding the author's use of a New Testament Hapax legomena, that means an only one-time used word. Hapax legomena, a word that appears only once in all of the New Testament, and that word is character, C-H-A-R-A-K-T-E-R, character. It's found in Hebrews 1.3, and it's used to describe the son's relationship to God. In verse 3a, he uses the word character, says Lane, to convey as emphatically as he could his conviction that in Jesus Christ there had been provided a perfect visible expression of the reality of God. I would certainly agree. And I would add that Jesus Christ is a perfect, visible expression of the reality of God because Jesus Christ is the reality of God visibly expressed. Character, then, where we get, of course, our word in the English character. Character is a word that is used only once in the New Testament, as I said, you can find the word 
a few times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, but you can find it 51 times in the writings of Philo, the Greek-speaking Jewish theologian. Now, A.T. Robertson is his usual helpful self. I always like to keep his word pictures in the Greek New Testament right handy as I go through an exegetical study of any book in the New Testament. Regarding this, he wrote, quote, character is an old word from the Greek word karasso, C-H-A-R-A-S-S-O, which means to cut or to scratch or to mark. It first was the agent with the ending T-E-R or the tool that did the marking. That's what a character originally was. Then it came to mean the mark or impress made, the exact reproduction, a meaning that he says is expressed by the word karagma in Acts 17.29 as well as Revelation 13.6 and following. Now, there are some scholars, and I found this out in my lengthy studies of the excellent researched commentaries. There are some scholars who consider Philo to be a profound influencer, that's a modern word, of the PT, the pastor teacher or pastor theologian who wrote Hebrews. Kosman, Ernst Kosman, tried to demonstrate in his excellent book, the Wandering People of God, a study in Hebrews, he tried to demonstrate that Gnosticism held a decisive sway over the writer of Hebrews, at least the vocabulary of Gnosticism. But I rather think that the pastor theologian, which we call the PT, was largely influenced rather by early Christian tradition. And by that, we could point to many of the books of the New Testament. In Hebrews, there is a remarkable affinity, as we've seen recently, with Stephen's speech, which Luke records in Acts 7. And we can also find, and I hope to get into this a little bit later in our study, an identifiable kinship with much of what we find in 1 Peter. I think right now off the top of my head of 1 Peter 3.22, that when Jesus ascended, angels were made subject to him. We have already noted a, an agreement with Paul, the apostle, and John, the beloved disciple. This author used what are known as hook words or catch words, not unlike those also deployed by Philo and other writers, since this writer of Hebrews was also of the Hellenistic or Greek-speaking Jews, though he was also a Christian, of course. We see Jesus. Our words written and spoken by a Greek-speaking Jew, a Greek-speaking Jew whose faith was kindled with regard to God's son. Now, I love the fact that in John 12, 21, some Greek 
Speaking Jews, Greek-speaking Jews, came to Philip, one of the twelve. And they said, listen carefully to what they said. Sir, we want to see Jesus. (laughs) It's a fantastic request because Hebrews is the homily or the discourse of a Greek-speaking Jew a Greek-speaking Jewish Christian who says, we see Jesus. So I think the Lord honored that request that they would see Jesus. Now, Craig Coaster, that's K-O-E-S-T-E-R, I'm probably pronouncing it incorrectly, but in his well-written Hebrews commentary, he made the following observation. He said, the Old Testament cannot be adequately comprehended apart from the crucified and exalted Christ. Yet the crucified and exalted Christ cannot be adequately comprehended apart from the Old Testament. The author interprets the Old Testament in light of Christ, says Coaster, Because he understands Christ's crucifixion and exaltation to be God's definitive means of communication. And the Old Testament as the shadow cast by that reality. I like the use of the word reality. I find it in more and more of my studies recently. And here by both Lane and Coaster. Hi, Lane. In fact, the sun is the visibly expressed reality that is God. I'll say that again. The sun is the visibly expressed reality that is God. The reality of God is Jesus. So if we were to say, what is the reality of God? We would answer Jesus. If you've seen Jesus, you've seen the Father. As there are debates about just what the name is that the Son inherited in his exaltation. And as many agree with that name being simply Son, my Son, as spoken by the Father. I cannot let go, I got a feeling that I can't let go, that the name is Jesus. Now, yes, Jesus was a name given to him in the days of his flesh on the occasion of his circumcision, eight days out from his birth. It was a name that the angel who announced his birth said, was indicative of him saving his people from their sins in Matthew one twenty one, But I think that the very name Jesus is also the name that he inherited. Those who argue that son is the name have a pretty good argument because God does say, my son, you are my son. And he calls him by the name son. It's the name that he inherited 
as they say, and they usually say that during his preexistence, all through his preexistence as divinity, and throughout the days of his flesh, he was also called the Son. Hebrews 5, 7, and 8 come to mind. Proleptically, they say. But on the other hand, and in another sense, he inherited the name Son at his exaltation. And by his entry into a new dimension, or we could say into a new world, as you'll see as this message unfolds. I really have no problem with that, and I'm not really here to argue about the name Son. But I can't lose my preference for Jesus being that name, since Jesus is not only a name given to God's eternal Son and eternal Word eight days after his incarnation, but it is also the name apart from which there is none other by which humanity can be saved. Acts 4.12. Moreover, and even more impressively, in Philippians 2.9-11, it says, For this reason God also highly exalted him, there's your exaltation of him, following his obedience to the extent of death, even by crucifixion. For, God, for this reason, God also highly exalted him and gave him the name, listen carefully, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. Moreover, it is not unlike the PT to let his readers discover something. It's called the way of discovery. It's a kind of way of teaching or communicating that holds off on giving the answer to something until a later time, and therefore it builds the anticipation that a discovery will be made. So it's not unlike this PT, this pastor theologian, to hold off on giving the name that he mentions in Hebrews 1, 4 and following until much later in the homily in order to give it weighty emphasis. The name Jesus doesn't even appear in Hebrews in his homily until 2, 9, where it's associated with his coronation with glory and honor after having, by the grace of God, tasted death for all of humanity. So there's a remarkable connection between Hebrews 2.9 and, Hebrew, and Philippians 2.9 through 11. Jesus being the name involved with both of those. Now Jesus is definitely associated not just with what we call Christology, but what our friend Roland King from Canada said in a recent brilliant essay that he wrote, which I hope to make public to many of you, Christosoteriology, Christo-soteriology, 
soteriology. Jesus is associated with Yahweh's salvation. His very name denotes so great salvation wrought entirely by God in him for all of humanity. And so I say that the name he inherited is Jesus. At least for now, that's what I seem to, I can't let go of it. We could use the same rationale that these scholars have used to say that the name he inherited is son or my son. Of course, it's the same person. Because they say that though Jesus was called by the name son or that his name was son in the days of his flesh, he also inherited that name. Well, I say the same thing. That the name that he had in the days of his flesh, Jesus, he also inherited the name that means Yahweh saves in his entry into the new dimension beyond the veil, which is called the future world. If you compare Hebrews 6.20, where it says that Jesus, by name it says, has entered in there on behalf as our forerunner, on behalf of us, Jesus has entered into the region beyond the veil as a forerunner on behalf of us. And if you compare that region beyond the veil with the coming world or the coming inhabited world, the world that is coming, the future world, in Hebrews 2.5, you start to get the idea that Jesus inherited a name when he entered into another world than from this one, another dimension than this one. So we could use the same rationale that these scholars have used, that though Jesus was called by name in the days of his flesh, he also, in a sense, inherited that name, which means Yahweh saves, in his entry into future world or another dimension. Well, right now I'd say I'm running with the big dogs, with men who have written seriously researched commentaries with bibliographies that are literally hundreds of books long. So I'm not going to be stubbornly dogmatic about my stance, but neither will I let go of Jesus. In any case, I know he won't let go of me. And he won't let go of you either. Now, I'm not going to be stubbornly dogmatic, but for now, I say, I think the name that he inherited is the name that he was given at birth, the name Jesus. Now, what if I'm wrong? And I ask this all the time because they we're always examining ourselves when we come to teach the word of God. What if I'm wrong? What if they're right and the name that the son inherited is son and not Jesus? And then I asked myself, at the judgment seat of Christ, will the father fault me for that error, even if I do hold on to that conviction until then? Will he fault me with that error? Well, I just can't picture the father saying, well, Rick, I have to withhold rewards from you. 
because you thought and taught that the name my son inherited was Jesus. I don't think so. And if I've erred, then I certainly have erred in faith. So let's get back to the idea. Our main text is Hebrews 1, 6, and we're leading up to it. Let's get back to the idea that we began with, that the crucified and exalted Christ cannot be adequately comprehended apart from the Old Testament. Now, we certainly have a multi-layered illustration of that in the catena of Old Testament verses in Hebrews 1, 5 through 13. Those verses strung along like a string of pearls or gathered like a bouquet of flowers demonstrate the superiority of the son to angels, not only as creator, but also as the savior of all of mankind. So the move to soteriology or the study of salvation is clear in the closing comment in Hebrews 1.14, after the verses are given, seven specifically, in 1.5 to 13, the writer then concludes by referring to angels as serving spirits sent to minister to those who are to inherit salvation. So there's soteriology. Moreover, the son himself is the savior. And he's the agent of God's universal salvation, which is called so great salvation, which we are urged not to neglect in Hebrews 2, 3. Now, as Hebrews 1, 1 to 4 kicks off the expositional part of Hebrews, Hebrews 2, 1 to 4 kicks off the exhortation part of Hebrews. But so far, this florilegium in Hebrews 1 reads like this. 1, 5 says this. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you, or again, I will be his father, and he will be my son. The pastor theologian sees the crucified and exalted Christ as this son whom the father addresses in a coronation, a crowning ceremony in Psalm 2-7. Moreover, in 2 Samuel 7-14 and 1 Chronicles 17-13, he interprets Nathan's oracle to David, which was usually seen to apply narrowly to Solomon as the son of David. Now applies ultimately, and we would say eschatologically, to the son of God, to Jesus Christ. Other earlier Christian writers agree with this. Paul wrote in Romans 1, 3-4, that God's son, Jesus Christ, is, quote, a descendant of David according to the flesh, and that he was, quote, designated as the son of God with power according to the Holy Spirit, being set apart as such by his having been raised from the dead. And then in 2 Timothy 2.8, Paul writes to Timothy and says, Remember Jesus Christ, 
raised up from the dead, who was of the seed of David, according to my gospel. So in Romans 1, 4, the designation and the separation from all others, the distinction from all others of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, had to do not only with his eternal sonship and divinity, but also with his exaltation through resurrection. The verb used by Paul in Romans 1.4 is the aorist passive participial form of the verb horizo, which is our word horizon minus the N, horizo. And it means that Jesus was literally marked off, distinguished from all others. Marked off from all others as God's unique son, his unique divine son. So there's a strong implication in that verse, Romans 1, 4, that the son of God is uniquely designated as such. His superiority to angels is strongly implied there because it says he is distinguished from all others as son of God. That would include angels. There's a creative complementarity then between Romans and Hebrews regarding God's son. Both of them noticeably begin with a profound reference to God's son. Romans 1, 1 to 4, Hebrews 1, 1 to 4. So, as I've suggested before, in both, there is a tacit recognition of his eternality, his eternal nature as son, his divinity, and a plain acknowledgement in both of his exaltation, which followed his obedience and his crucifixion and death. So I've suggested this before. Hebrews is, in one sense, an elaboration of the truth found in Romans 8.34, which is in the heart of the central paragraph of Romans. Romans 8.31-39. So Hebrews 1.6, which is our central focus today, continues the string of pearls gathered from the Old Testament, which comprehends the crucified and exalted Christ, and to which the crucified and exalted Christ gives comprehension. He gives comprehension to the meaning of these verses. These verses give comprehension to the meaning of his exaltation. Very important. So Hebrews 1.6 involves another quotation. This time of the Greek text, and it's very important that we understand the Greek text because sometimes it actually differs from the Hebrew text as we're going to see in a quotation of, or at least an allusion to Deuteronomy 32.43 in Moses' song or Moses' hymn. The Greek text there is quite different from the Hebrew text. This is a Greek text speaking or Hellenistic Jewish Christian writing Hebrews. So he quotes exclusively or at least almost exclusively from one or more than one versions of the Greek text of the Hebrew scriptures. So Psalm 97.7 is in the Greek text 
found in 96.7. The Old Testament verse, 96.7 of the Septuagint, 97.7 in your English Bible, reads like this. Let all who worship carved images be ashamed, who boast of their idols. And here's the key phrase. Worship him, all his angels. Worship him, all his angels. Now, this involves an insight, an important insight. We're coming up to an important insight. In Hebrews 1.6, in its totality, compared to 97.7, consider Hebrews 1.6, in its totality. It says this, and again, when he leads his firstborn, that's God leading his firstborn, into the world. Now, the word used for world there is oikomene, not cosmos. And that's extremely important. Rightly dividing the word of truth, 2 Timothy 2.15. Accurately handling the word of truth, there is a distinction between the world which Jesus was led into following his resurrection and ushered into following his resurrection and the world cosmos that he came into by his incarnation, which is found in Hebrews 10:5, the cosmos. There's a difference and a distinction between, again, the incarnation where he entered the world for a purpose of humiliation, suffering, and death, and the world that he entered, an inhabited world that he entered through ascension following resurrection and exaltation. If we don't get this, we've missed one of the most important and significant keys to the interpretation of Hebrews. And I'll illustrate it as we go. Now, the Greek verb that means leads into, when he leads his firstborn into the world, that word is ice-ago, or ice-agage, ice-agage. Now, I'm not going to spell it out like I usually would on our overhead here. I, maybe there'll be time for that when we end our separation finally. But it can be compared to the verb anago. Both of them end with A-G-O. In Hebrews 13.20, there, and we looked at this in our so-called Easter message, in Hebrews 13, 20, it says that the God of peace led up, anago, the Lord Jesus from the dead. Led up from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, the Lord Jesus, because of the blood of the everlasting covenant, which is the obedience that he wrought to the death of the cross. And so this word, ice, Agage, which is the aorist active subjunctive, third person singular form of the verb isago, can be compared to the verb anago. God the Father does the leading forth or the leading up or the leading in of both of these verbs. God the Father is the actor and the subject of these verbs. He leads up from the dead, anago, the son or the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord Jesus. Then it says he leads into the world. And therefore, this is not dealing with the entry of the Lord into the world of the present world. 
This is referring to the leading by the father of his son, Jesus Christ, into another world, we could call it, I like to call it future world, following his resurrection from the dead where the father led him up. The father led him up from the realm of the dead. The father leads him into ice ago, into the world, not this world. Arguably, arguably, not this world. And when he gets there, what's the father say? Hey, all you angels, worship him. Given him a name above all the angels. He's inherited that name. He is made much better. He became much better than the angels in future world. So, once again, The God of peace led up from the dead, the Lord Jesus. But here it says that God leads his firstborn into the world. Again, the word world in Hebrews 1.6 is oikomene, O-I-K-O-U-M-E-N-E. Now, there's a lot of ancient Greek speakers in our audience that may be listening to this. Don't judge me on my pronunciation. I don't claim to pronounce the New Testament Greek very well. I just, I can read it pretty well and I can write it pretty well, but I, I may not necessarily pronounce it correctly. Oikomene. It means inhabited world, specifically. And that means inhabited as opposed to, say, an arid wasteland or desert or no man's land, such as that which the Exodus generation wandered around in for 40 years. Where were they headed? They were headed not for an arid wasteland, but for an inhabited world, the promised land. So oikomene is also used in Hebrews 2.5. When the pastor teacher or the pastor theologian makes the remarkable statement that God, quote, did not subject the world to come, Notice it, the world, tain oikomenen, tain melusan, the world, the one coming, the world, the one coming. He did not subject the world to come to angels. See, angelology is still the theological subject all the way through to 16. Comes up again elsewhere too. And then he adds, and this is extremely important, and and don't worry about getting so much in this message because these things are going to be ironed out and fanned out and elaborated on in the future. He adds by an exegesis of Psalm 8, 4 through 6. Again, that's the Greek text of Psalm 8, 5 through 7. In Hebrews 2.6.9, he exegetes it and interprets that the world to come or future world is to be subject to the Son of Man, whom he then identifies for the first time as Jesus in verse 9, who by the grace of God has tasted death for every man or or every human being, genders notwithstanding. 
So it's plain that the PT is dealing with a double entendre of man and son of man that's found in Psalm 8, 4 through 6, which is 8, 5 through 7 in the Septuagint. And that he applies these words both to, listen carefully to this, he applies these words both to humanity in its totality over all the times, humankind in general. But he also applies this to Jesus, the Son of Man, in particular. So Jesus is identified in a remarkable way with mankind in general, even as mankind, or if you like it better, humankind, in general, is identified with Jesus, the Son of Man. This also makes sense of the assertion and the prophecy that Jesus is the prophet. It's not Khalil Gibran. It's Jesus, the Son of God, is the prophet prophesied by Moses, and listen carefully to this, in Deuteronomy 18.15. The prophet whom Moses prophesied to the sons of Israel, he said, would be raised up from your own brothers. Raised up from your own brothers. Now, obviously, there's a reference to Hebrews 2.11 here, explaining why Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, or, again, his siblings, brothers and sisters. So, if you want to follow some of these things, Deuteronomy 18.15, refer then to Hebrews 2.11, and you can start to see a doctrine building. What are we doing here? We are moving to an answer to the twofold question that we brought up in increment 13. That's quite a few increments ago. The question is this. It's twofold. And there are two twofold questions I can't let go of. I got a feeling about them that I can't let go. I got a feeling and I can't let go. I'm a dog on a scent. And that's what it is to study. It's to be on the scent. And you can't be deviated from the scent of your quarry and your prey. And this is the question. In what sense did the Son, as the source of our salvation, become perfect or complete? And why through Suffering. Why did his perfection have to come through suffering? And this question is linked to another twofold question. How does the Son, who is the, as we learned in our doing and living theology, is the eternally begotten of God, and who was eternally generated by the Father out of the Father's own substance? and who is consubstantial with the Father. How can such a person become so much better than the angels? And how does he whose name is already Yahweh inherit a name that is so much more excellent than the names of the angels? So I have to ask you a question. Am I stringing you along? 
Am I stringing you along down there in Texas? Am I stringing you along down there in Mississippi or in New Mexico? Am I stringing you along? Those of you down in Florida. Am I stringing you along? Well, if I am, that's because I'm using the way of discovery as a way of teaching. It's a method of communication where together we discover the answers to these questions. And in doing so, we see Jesus. We see Jesus in a way that we have not seen him before. Even if we believe in the universally saving significance of Jesus Christ, we haven't seen him in the way we're going to see him. Now back to Hebrews 1.6. So far we have this translation. And again, notice he uses that word again, pollen. He does it as a device by which he adds verse upon verse or reference upon reference or example upon example. Pollen, and again, and again, and again. He uses it again to introduce another verse on top of Psalm 2.7 which was complemented by 2 Samuel 7.14 in verse 5. So, and again, when he leads his firstborn into the world, he says, who says? God says, worship him, all of God's angels. Or he could say, worship him, all you angels, all you angels of God, my angels. So the PT uses this device with the word pollen, P-A-L-I-N, for stockpiling evidence. He does the same thing in Hebrews 2.13, twice, again and again. And in Hebrews 4.5 and 4.7, again and again. He uses it in Hebrews 10.30, as we've already seen, and again. And he uses this adverb, palin, as a kind of conjunction to add another flower to the florilegium, the list of verses. He's not talking here about the sun coming again, as he will in the parousia, his second coming, as people call it. He is rather saying again to add another scripture for his proof of the superiority of the sun over angels. He has the power to command angels. He does so throughout the whole book of Revelation. Jesus Christ has the power to command the angel of a plague, as he did in 1 Chronicles 21, to sheath his sword. The sword drawn is a picture of a plague in which there's some kind of angelic involvement. And when the Lord says, stop, the angel sheaths his sword and the plague ends in the case of the plague at that time 70,000 deaths happened in Israel and then it stopped our prayer which we will pray soon is that the in the name of the son whose name is above all the names of the angels would God command the angel of this plague to sheath his sword and stop this plague 
Again, you can read First Chronicles 21 so that you'll know that I'm not being bizarre in a prayer that I may be sending out to, to Telestai Phalanx very soon. And I haven't yet written it. So all you angels, all God's angels, not some, worship him. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will acknowledge, including all the angels who prostrate themselves before him. All who are under the earth, all who are on the earth, all who are above the earth. That's pretty universal. You don't like the word universal? You better get used to it. So the word again introduces another verse on top of Psalm 2-7 and 2 Samuel 7-14. The PT uses this device to stockpile these verses. And so at this point, I would like to introduce a very interesting dialectic. That's kind of a conversation between two or more people as recorded in a teaching or as demonstrated in a teaching. It is succinctly stated by, again, A.T. Robertson, one of my favorite exegetical scholars. He wrote a book called Word Pictures in the Greek New Testament. And this is what he wrote regarding Hebrews 1.6. He writes this, quote, If pollen, P-A-L-I-N, is taken with ice agage, the reference is to the second coming as in 9.28 of Hebrews. Then he says, if pollen merely introduces another quotation, in parenthesis in Psalm 97.7, parallel to Kai pollen in verse 5, the reference is to the incarnation when the angels did worship the child Jesus, Luke 2.13 and following. So there's no way, he says, and this is what he says, there is no way to decide certainly about it. He's being honest. But there's a middle term. It's not just a decision between the incarnation by which Jesus comes into this world, and yes, he was worshipped by angels when he came into this cosmos, this world. It doesn't have to be a choice between the incarnation when he comes into this world that has its plagues, its heartaches, its death, its dying, its crying, its brokenness, its economic catastrophes, its wars, its rumors of wars, its plagues of locusts like is going on right now in Eastern Africa. No. Of course, they blame the plague of locusts in Eastern Africa on global warming. And of course, I'm sure that those people in Egypt blamed the 10 plagues on global warming too. You know, all those thousands of years ago in which the earth was imperiled by global warming. Sorry for being sarcastic, but I just have to be about some things that blaspheme the sustaining power of God and in Christ over this universe and over this earth and over history. So, let's continue. There is a third possibility. It doesn't have to be the incarnation or the parousia. By the parousia, he comes back to this world and transforms it. There's a third choice, and that's namely the son's exaltation by his ascension to heaven to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high. After some reflection on this matter, I have come to agree once again with Craig Coaster, K-O-E-S-T-R-E-R, 
apologies if I've mispronounced your name, who in his Hebrews commentary writes the following about Hebrews 1.6, quote, this verse has been correlated with several points in Christ's career, of which the first is most plausible. For him, the first was exaltation. The exordium is structured so that the Old Testament citations in 1.5 to 14 support what was said in 1.1 to 4. Since the description of the Son began with his exaltation as heir, H-E-I-R, in 1.2b, and connected his superiority to angels with his exaltation in 1.4, it is most natural to connect 1.6 with the exaltation. Now, I think he hit the nail on the head there. William Lane seems also to agree. Lane agrees with Coaster. He agrees about this on page 27 of his book. I've read all the way to 27, but that's only after a 157-page introduction, which I also read. Because I consider it to be of great importance to the interpretation of Hebrews, I want to quote a fairly long passage in Lane regarding Hebrews 1.6. And Lane's commentary is just remarkable so far. He says, quote, Oikomene, then, concerns neither the incarnation nor the parousia, but the entrance of Christ into the heavenly world following his sacrificial death. Christ's entrance into the world, eis ton kosmon, or eis ton kosmon, in 10.5, much later in the epistle, in his incarnation, entailed the humiliation of being made lower than the angels. 2.7 and 2.9 are referenced. But his entrance into the oikomenane, verse 6 of chapter 1, signified the enthronement and exaltation above the angels, verses 3 through 6 of Hebrews 1. So the context requires that oikomene be understood as the heavenly world of eschatological salvation into which the Son entered at his ascension. Now, I think that's as far as I want to go today, even though I had much, much more on the subject. Let's consider, to sum up this thing right now, in order to have a key for interpretation, there are three possibilities in Hebrews 1.6 where the father led his firstborn into the world, oikomene. That world, oikomene, is called the world to come in Hebrews 2.5. So the options aren't only when God leads him into the world because he didn't really lead the son into the world that we now know it. The son said, when, I, when he comes into the world, he says, look, it is written about me in the volume of the book to do your will. You have made a body for me. That's coming into this world for the purpose of humiliation. Following his humiliation, however, is his exaltation to the right hand of the majesty on high, where the father leads him into that future world where he inhabits the region beyond the veil right now. 
Hebrews focuses in on something we don't usually focus in on, his exaltation, which is as important as his parousia, his coming into the world. So there isn't just the option of the parousia, his second coming, and the incarnation, his first coming. There is the option which I choose, which is his exaltation, which is the subject of Hebrews. Christ exalted to the right hand of the Father. And then we begin to understand why he suffered to be perfected. And in what sense he inherited a name above all the angels' names and became much better than the angels. What is his perfection? What is this process that he went through by which he was perfected? And why through suffering? This question hovers over us now as we continue. And there is much more to, to do on Hebrews 1.6. But right now, we're on the way to a great discovery. So don't be afraid to smell the flowers along the pathway, the florilegium, the stack of verses, the string of pearls, the collection of flowers picked from the Old Testament scriptures that portray the son in his superiority over the angels. And Father, we thank you that though we are separated by mandate of man in the midst of a global pandemic at this very hour. We thank you that we still have the essential service of the word of God that goes forward, the essential service of preaching and teaching, and that many can be the recipients of that service. And as one of your servants, Father, I thank you for the privilege of performing this service even throughout this time. We pray that your word will find root in the hearts of many, and that it will bring forth fruit, some 30, some 60, some 100-fold. And as we move to the end of this service today, Father, we pray for the finances of all the people in our congregation, and in fact, for the economic state of our nation. Only you can bring it back, because you are the source and provision of all that we have and all that we will ever have. And we pray, Father, for this assembly, this church, that we will have the economic necessity to carry forth in this world with our message, with a message that's even now unfurling like a banner over us of love in Hebrews. And we pray, Father, that very soon, very soon, you will command the angel of this plague, if we may use a poetic reference, that you will command the angel of this plague to sheathe his sword. We ask this in the name above all names, in the name to which every knee will bow and every tongue confess, Jesus our Lord. Amen.